Volume Two, Chapter Nine of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. We must turn, dear reader, to other persons and to other scenes, but still keep to that eventful day when the smugglers, who had almost fancied themselves lords of Kent, first met severe discomfiture at the hands of those sent to suppress their illicit traffic. Many small parties had before been defeated, it is true. Many a cargo of great value, insufficiently protected, had been seized. Such, indeed, had been the case with the preceding venture of Richard Radford, and such had been several times the result of overweening confidence. But the free traders of Kent had still more frequently been successful in their resistance of the law, and they had never dreamed that in great numbers, and with every precaution and care to boot, they could be hemmed in and overpowered, in a country with every step of which they were well acquainted. They had now, however, been defeated, as I have said, for the first time, in a complete and conclusive manner, after every precaution had been taken, and when every opportunity had been afforded them of trying their strength with the dragoons, as they had often boastfully expressed a wish to do. But we must now leave them and turn to the interior of the house near which the strife took place, nay more for we must enter a fair lady's chamber and watch her as she lies during the night of which we have already given so many scenes looking for a while into her waking thoughts and slumbering dreams for that night passed in a strange mingling of sleepless fancies and of drowsy visions far from me to encourage weak and morbid sensibilities or to represent life as a dream of sickly feelings or a stage for the action of ill-regulated passions it is a place of duty and of action, of obedience to the rule of the one great guide, of endeavour, and, alas, of trial. But still human beings are not mere machines. There is still something within this framework of dust and ashes besides, and very different from, the bones and muscles, the veins and nerves of which it is composed. And heaven forbid that it should not be so. There are still loves and affections, sympathies and regards, associations and memories, and all the linked sweetness of that strange harmonious whole, where the spirit and the matter, the soul and the body, blended in mysterious union, act on each other, and reciprocate by every sense and every perception, new sources of pain or of delight. The forms and conventionalities of society, the habits of the age in which we live, the force of education, habit example may in very many cases check the outward show of feeling and in some perhaps wear down to nothing the reality but still how many a bitter heartache lies concealed beneath the polished brow and smiling lip how many a bright aspiration how many a tender hope how many a passionate throb hides itself from the eyes of others from the foreigners of the heart under an aspect of gay merriment or of cold indifference the silver services of the world are all believe me but of plated goods and the brightest ornaments that deck the table or adorn the saloon but of silver gilt could we as angels may be supposed to do stand by the bedside of many a fair girl who has been laughing through an evening of apparent merriment and look through the fair bosom into the heart beneath see all the feelings that thrill therein or trace even the visions that check a slumber, what should we behold? Alas, how strange a contrast to the beaming looks and gladsome smiles which have marked the course of the day! How often would be seen the bitter repining, the weary sickness of the heart, 
the calm, stern grief, the desolation, the despair, forming a black and gloomy background to the bright seeming of the hours of light. How often in the dream should we behold the lost, the loved, the dead, too many, yet how few, rise up before memory in those moments when not only the shackles and the handcuffs of the mind, imposed by the tyrant uses of society, are cast off, but also when the softer bands are loosened, which the waking spirit places upon unavailing regrets and aspirations all in vain. In those hours when memory and imagination and feeling are awake, and when judgment and reason and resolution are all buried in slumber, can it be well for us thus to check the expression of all the deeper feelings of the heart, to shut out all external sympathies, to lock within the prison of the heart its brightest treasures like the miser's gold, and only to give up to them the hours of solitude and of slumber? I know not, and the question perhaps is a difficult one to solve, but such, however, are the general rules of society, and to its rules we are slaves and bondsmen. It was to her own chamber that Edith Croyland usually carried her griefs and memories, and even in the house of her uncle, though she was aware how deeply he loved her, she could not, or she would not, venture to speak of her sensations as they arose. On the eventful day of young Radford's quarrel with Sir Edward Digby, Edith retired at the sober hour at which the whole household of Mr. Croyland usually sought repose, but there for a considerable time she meditated, as she had often meditated before, on the brief intelligence she had received on the preceding day. "'He is living,' she said to herself. "'He is in England, and yet he seeks me not. "'But my sister says he loves me still. "'It is strange. It is very strange. "'He must have greatly changed. "'So eager, so impetuous as he used to be, "'to become timid, cautious, reserved, "'never to write, never to send.' and yet why should I blame him? What has he not met with from mine, if not from me? What has his love brought upon himself and his? The ruin of his father, a parent's suffering and death, the destruction of his own best prospects, a life of toil and danger, and expulsion from the scenes in which his bright and early days were spent. Why should I wonder that he does not come back to a spot where every object must be hateful to him? Why should I wonder that he does not seek me, whose image can never be separated from all that is painful and distressing to him in memory? Poor Henry! Oh, that I could cheer him, and wipe away the dark and gloomy recollections of the past! Such were some of her thoughts ere she lay down to rest, and they pursued her still, long after she had sought her pillow, keeping her waking for some hours. At length, not long before daybreak, sleep took possession of her brain, but it was not untroubled sleep. Wild and whirling images for some time supplied the place of thought, but they were all vague and confused and undefined for a considerable length of time after sleep had closed her eyes, and she forgot them as soon as she awoke. But at length a vision of more tangible form presented itself, which remained impressed upon her memory. In it, the events of the day mingled with those both of the former and the latter years, undoubtedly in strange and disorderly shape, but still bearing a sufficient resemblance to reality to show whence they were derived. The form of young Radford, bleeding and wounded, seemed before her eyes, and with one hand clasped tightly round her wrist, he seemed to drag her down into a grave prepared for himself. 
Then she saw Sir Edward Digby, with a naked sword in his hand, striving in vain to cut off the arm that held her, the keen blade passing through and through the limb of the phantom, without dissevering it from the body, or relaxing its hold upon herself. Then the figure of her father stood before her, clad in a long mourning cloak, and she heard his voice crying in a dark and solemn tone, "'Down, down, both of you, to the grave that you have dug for me!' The next instant the scene was crowded with figures, both on horseback and on foot. Many a countenance which she had seen and known at different times was amongst them, and all seemed urging her on down into the gulf before her, till suddenly appeared at the head of a bright and glittering troop, he whom she had so long and deeply loved, as if advancing at full speed to her rescue. She called loudly to him, she stretched out her hand towards him, and onward he came through the throng till he nearly reached her. Then, in an instant, her father interposed again and pushed him back. All became a scene of disarray and confusion, as if a general battle had been taking place around her. Swords were drawn, shots were fired, wounds were given and received. There were cries of agony and loud words of command, till at length, in the midst, her lover reached her, his arms were cast round her, she was pressed to his bosom, and with a start and mingled feelings of joy and terror, Edith's dream came to an end. Daylight was pouring into her room through the tall window, but yet she could hardly persuade herself that she was not dreaming still, for many of the sounds which transmitted such strange impressions to her mind still rang in her ears. She heard shots and galloping horse, and the loud word of command, and after pausing for an instant or two she sprang up, cast something over her, and ran to the window. It was a bright and beautiful morning, and the room which she occupied looked over Mr. Croyland's garden wall to the country beyond, but underneath that garden wall was presented a scene such as Edith had never before witnessed. Before her eyes, mingled in strange confusion with a group of men who, from their appearance, she judged to be smugglers, were a number of the royal dragoons, and though pistols were discharged on both sides, and even long guns on the part of the smugglers, the use of firearms was too limited to produce sufficient smoke to obscure the view. Swords were out, and used vehemently, and on running her eye over the mass before her, she saw a figure that strongly brought back her thoughts to former days. Directing the operations of the troops, seldom using the sword which he carried in his own hand, yet mingling in the thickest of the fray, appeared a tall and powerful young man, mounted on a splendid charger, but only covered with a plain grey cloak. The features she could scarcely discern, but there was something in the form and in the bearing that made Edith's heart beat vehemently, and caused her to raise her voice to heaven in murmured prayer. The shots were flying thick. One of them struck the sundial in the garden and knocked a fragment off, but still she could not withdraw herself from the window, and with eager and anxious eyes she continued to watch the fight till another body of dragoons swept up, and the smugglers, apparently struck with panic, abandoned resistance and were soon seen flying in every direction over the ground. One man, mounted on a strong grey horse, passed close beneath the garden wall, and in him Edith instantly recognised young Richard Radford. That sight made her draw back again for a moment from the window, lest he should recognise her. But the next instant she looked out again, and then beheld the officer whom she had seen commanding the dragoons, stretching out his hand and arm in the direction which the fugitive had taken, as if giving orders for his pursuit. 
She watched him with feelings indescribable, and saw him more than once turn his eyes towards the house where she was, and gaze on it long and thoughtfully. "'Can he know whose dwelling this is?' she asked herself. "'Can he know who is in it, and yet ride away?' But so it was. After he had remained on the ground for about half an hour, she saw him depart, turning his horse's head slowly towards Woodchurch, and Edith withdrew from the window and wept. Her eyes were dry, however, and her manner calm when she went down to breakfast, and she heard, unmoved from her uncle, the details of the skirmish which had taken place between the smugglers and the military. "'This must be a tremendous blow to them,' said Mr. Croyland. "'The goods are reported to be of immense value, and the whole of them were stated to have been run by that old infernal villain, Radford. I am glad that this has happened, trebly. Felix ter et amplius, my dear Edith. First, that the trade, which enriches scoundrels to the detriment of the fair and lawful merchant, has received nearly its death-blow. Secondly, that these audacious vagabonds, who fancied they had all the world at their command, and that they could do as they pleased in Kent, have been taught how impotent they are against a powerful hand and a clear head. And thirdly, that the most audacious vagabond of them all, who has amassed a large fortune by defiance of the law, and by a system which embodies cheatery with robbery, I mean robbery of the revenue with cheatery of the lawful merchant, has been the person to suffer. I have heard a great deal of forcing nations to abate their customs dues by smuggling in despite of them, but depend upon it, whoever advocates such a system is, I will not say either a rogue or a fool, as some rationed intemperate persons might say, but a man with very queer notions of morals, my dear. I dare say the fellow's firing awoke you, my love. You look pale, as if you had been disturbed. Edith replied simply that she had been roused by the noise, but did not enter into any particulars, though she saw, or fancied she saw, an inquiring look upon her uncle's face as he spoke. During the morning many were the reports and anecdotes brought in by the servants regarding the encounter which had taken place so close to the house, and all agreed that never had so terrible a disaster befallen the smugglers. Their bands were quite broken up, it was said, their principal leaders taken or killed, and the amount of smuggled goods which, with the usual exaggeration of rumour, was raised to three or four hundred thousand pounds, was universally reported to be the loss of Mr. Radford. His son had been seen by many in command of the party of contraband traders, and it was clear that he had fled to conceal himself, in fear of the very serious consequences which were likely to ensue. Mr. Croyland rubbed his hands. "'I will mark this day in the calendar with a white stone,' he said. "'Seldom, my dear Edith, very seldom, do so many fortunate circumstances happen together. A party of atrocious vagabonds, discomforted and punished as they deserve, the most audacious rogue of the whole, stripped of his ill-gotten wealth, and a young ruffian who has long bullied and abused the whole county, driven from that society in which he never had any business. This young officer, this Captain Osborne, must be a very clever as well as a very gallant fellow. Captain Osborne, murmured Edith, were they commanded by Captain Osborne? Yes, my dear, answered the old gentleman. I saw him myself over the garden wall. I know him, my love. I have been introduced to him. Didn't you hear me say he is coming to spend a few days with me? Edith made no reply, but somewhat to her surprise she heard her uncle shortly after order his carriage to be at the door at half-past twelve. 
he gave his fair niece no invitation to accompany him, and Edith prepared to amuse herself during his absence as best she might. She calculated, indeed, upon that which, to a well-regulated mind, is almost always either a relief or a pleasure, though too often a sad one, the spending of an hour or two in solitary thought. But all human calculations are vain, and so were those of poor Edith Croyland. For the present, however, we must leave her to her fate, and follow her good uncle, Zachary, on his expedition to Woodchurch, whither, as doubtless the reader has anticipated, his steps, or rather those of his coach-horses, were turned, just as the hands of the clock in the vestibule pointed to a quarter to one. End of chapter 9